Welcome to episode 1102 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by Fangraphs, but most importantly by our Patreon supporters. I am Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, joined as usual by Ben Lindbergh of The <laughs> Ringer. Hello, how are you? Hi, yeah, I haven't missed one yet since you started. How uh, how are how is your how's your cold? I know you came to visit Portland with a cold. I think that it has mm-hmm. been successfully given to somebody else. Yeah, I pretty much <laughs> left it there. Yeah, I think that's right. I think Jesse is coming down with it now. Uh-huh. I don't know whether anyone where you are has also. I hope not, but my bad. To be determined. What a <laughs> yeah. great first impression. Okay, so you uh <laughs> you you asked right before we uh right before we started to record whether we should talk about Reese Hoskins cuz he is as one example, he is the currently most searched player on the Fangraphs, but as a better and more relatable example, he's good. He's gotten off to mm-hmm. a hot start and and many people are talking. I just wanted to mention, so Reese Hoskins has very, very good numbers. He's got almost as many uh, walks as strikeouts. He has a WRC plus of 191. And most importantly, he's already homered eight times in 50 games, mm-hmm. 64 plate appearances. So I like Reese Hoskins. A lot of people like Reese Hoskins. He's one of the few bright spots in what's been a difficult Phillies season. But I don't intentionally want to throw cold water on anyone. I don't want to rain on anyone's parade. But let me just list off. He's, he's hit eight home runs. Here are his opposing pitchers. Here's the good one. I'm going to start with Dan Straley. He's good. You know, he's, well, he's he's fine. Dan Straley, home run. Other seven, Ty Black. I wish we didn't run into this. Ty Block, Ty Black, Ty, that guy. <laughs> no, Him, not again. Tra- Travis Wood, Justin Nicolino, Kyle Crick, Kyle McGrath, and Craig Stammen. Those are, those are definitely eight pitchers. Three of them pitch for the Padres. Three of them, I believe, pitch for the Marlins. Only Dan Straley among that group is good. So with baseball, we usually don't talk much about quality of competition because it balances out pretty quick but it it doesn't really balance out over 64 plate appearances and and reese hoskins has been promoted from triple a all the way to triple (laughs) a right yeah and and he was good in triple a to be fair so that's part of the the hype that he has recently been getting at least on as carson says the electronic pages of fangrass but i think that differentiates him from the type of person who comes up and has a couple of good weeks but did not have the track record of doing so. And so that makes it very questionable. He seems like a, a good player and one of those guys who has a certain skill set that works well and maybe leads to you being underrated and not being that high on prospect lists and all of that. So it's nice that something has gotten right for, for the <laughs> Phillies. So we're enjoying Reese Hoskins too, but it is a, a very small sample so far. Agreed. I think the the thing that is uh, has gotten me excited, if anything can get me excited about the Phillies, it's that over the past two and a half months or so down in AAA, you might remember the J.P. Crawford 
very good prospect got off to a terrible mm-hmm. start of the season but over his past eh, 269 plate appearances let's use that as the best possible cutoff he's at 286 379 526 lots of walks not too many strikeouts plenty of home runs jp crawford is turning it around and you figure if you've got hoskins crawford aaron altair aaron nola in the majors next year well that's four that's four mm-hmm. players that's and, and you know cesar hernandez is, is something so it's not it's not all a lost cause and this feels like uh this could be one of those rebuilds that starts to turn around in a hurry as some mm-hmm. players uh start to establish themselves as major league caliber but eh, they're they're coming out of it is the point that they're gradually coming out of it and they won't have to uh look forward to a 2018 season where one of their best hitters has been daniel nava yeah that's right yeah J.P. Crawford has uh, had the the Byron Buxton type turnaround (laughs) that you also recently wrote about, which I'm rooting for because Buxton is fun just as a great defender who doesn't hit a whole lot. But as a great defender who does hit, he'd be even more fun. So that is kind of happening. And as you pointed out, it's a whole twins wide improvement in plate discipline, which is uh, maybe one of those instances of a coach making a real difference. I don't know. It's a very sudden improvement on their part as the new regime and new coaches have come in. So that's been an exception to the the typical coaches. We can't really tell what they do or do they do anything or they get scapegoated when something goes wrong. But in this case, a lot of things are going right and uh, particularly for Buxton. Yeah, I think one of the problems that we have when we try to evaluate coaches is that I think we, we tend to think of helpful things or detrimental things as being helpful or detrimental across the board. But what it can probably happen and what probably does happen with coaches is that their their coaching methods work better for certain players than others. And so you could have a hitting coach who's who's really good for, for the center fielder, except mm-hmm. he doesn't really click with the second baseman. And then if you look for a some sort of team-wide distribution of results, then it, they're just going to be all over, all over the map. And so in that case, I don't know, maybe that's the coach's fault. I don't know whose fault that would be. I don't know how much you can really expect coaching to make a difference at the major league level anyway. But Twins interesting. Buxton is a difficult one to write about because just like with, uh, we've talked before about how when the Cubs have started to win, we just assumed they're just going to keep winning, you know, because mm-hmm. we think the Cubs are so good that they meet our preconceived notions. And, and Buxton is coming from a position of having been a top prospect, of course. And so I know that I'm not immune to the bias of just looking for reasons to think he's getting good now because I really yeah. want him to be good. I was playing through some uh, the StatCast catch probability leaderboard for this year because I don't think many people have looked at that yet. And and I was averaging out all the math and trying to see who has made the most catches relative to the general league average. And mm-hmm. uh, it's Byron Buxton. He's he's number one and he's number one uh, with a bullet. He is way out there. He's caught something like, I don't know, 22, 23 more fly balls roughly than you'd expect the average defender to make. And he's he's done this as a as a center fielder. So he's playing a premium position. His base running is very good, which is not a surprise. He's basically as fast as Billy Hamilton based on the information we have. And now he's starting to make contact. And when you put that all together, I mean, I guess a light hitting Byron Buxton, but like a decent hitting Byron Buxton can be, I guess, Ender Inciarte, but like with mm-hmm. Billy Hamilton style speed. So maybe a better example would be Billy Hamilton, yeah. uh, except, you know, 
better as a hitter. So a better offense of Billy Hamilton hmm. would be sort of the upside here, which doesn't even address the fact that Buxton could hit for power. So I gone back and forth when he was making so little contact. I I really like to see young players make contact because mm-hmm. if the, you don't make contact, you got to have Joey Gallo power. And only Joey Gallo and a few other players have that. Buxton yes. doesn't. But when he starts to make contact, then you look at the league now and you look at how the ball is flying. You don't need, you just need to make adequate contact for the ball to leave the yard. All of a mm-hmm. sudden, if Buxton is something like a league average hitter, then he is a legitimate star player. And I know that there are some eye rolls on Twitter, which is the only crowd that I am exposed to in my daily life, <laughs> because I, apparently I wrote about Buxton being good the same day that Aaron Gleeman did. And I'm mm-hmm. sure that we've all fallen for this before. Buxton yep. had a big I wrote September. My, my Buxton piece this spring. We've yep. all been there. Yeah, and Buxton had a really good September last year. But the difference between recent Buxton and September Buxton from last year is that that Buxton still struck out a bunch. This Buxton right now, not doing Mm -hmm. it. So anyway, uh, he probably still sucks, but something to watch. Mm -hmm. Could be fun. So I want to mention a player I first heard of about an hour ago, courtesy (laughs) of a Facebook group member, listener Graham Stewart. And it's Grant Massey. I guess he's listed as a shortstop, second baseman, and third baseman in the White Sox system. He is 25 years old. He was a 26th round draftee in 2015. And he seems to be doing the two-way player thing. He's an A-ball this year. For the second consecutive year, he he was actually in high A for a time. Last year, he's back in A-ball. And he made his pitching debut on August 5th. And since then, he has gotten into 23 games. So I think I think he has maybe full-time converted in the middle of a season, possibly. Yeah, August 5th, according to Graham and according to some tweets I saw, was his pitching debut, I think. And somehow he has already pitched 23 times. So he's been pitching a lot this month, unless I'm, I'm misreading seem, something. Right? It doesn't. But he was hitting... Decently this this season he uh, he played sixty games at shortstop and he was hitting two ninety three three sixty three four hundred which you know he's a I guess this is his age twenty four season he's twenty five now it's a ball that's not super impressive but he was at least hitting fairly well by the standards of the league and playing shortstop and then all of a sudden he seems to be a full time pitcher or just about and he has a two point one eight ERA although he has barely struck out more batters than he has walked and he just hasn't struck out many people at all but I am just trying to figure out what is going on with this line here I I tried to look for stories very briefly and, and didn't see anything he's not a big prospect he's not on the White Sox top 30 of course the White Sox top 30 is you know full of like eight of the best hundred best prospects in baseball something like that so it's tough to crack the White Sox top 30 but he's not on there on MLB.com he wasn't a big prospect I don't know if he is just if he's doing both now because we don't have game logs on baseball reference for eight ball so it's a little tougher to tell what he has been doing lately so i think that this is a mistake if you look at huh. baseball references stats then yeah it has 23 pitching appearances in the 33 innings yeah. since august 5th which is yeah that's, that's like <laughs> scott proctor kind of usage yeah but if you go through his game log he's actually only pitched twice he's okay. uh he's he pitched on august 5th three innings yeah long outings though right yeah yeah 
11th through 13th innings of a game and then on August 24th three more innings 9th through 11th could be a situation where uh, where maybe the roster was short this is a ball you know the things happen mm-hmm. I opened up the box scores for these games but I don't want to read them because I don't care uh, mm-hmm. it looks like Grant Ma- and if you go to the Canapolis a ball team website it confirms that he is thrown in two games he's thrown six innings uh, so it looks like it is just some sort of weird otherwise inexplicable baseball reference mistake hmm. All right. But if you haven't looked at the game log, maybe you already have, so maybe you know the answer. So he's playing for Canapolis. Do you know the Canapolis mascot? No, I don't. I didn't. It's the Intimidators. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's unusual because I've never heard it, but you figure you're coming up with a team name, and what is a mascot supposed to do? They're all supposed to be mean and scary. They're supposed to intimidate, and they thought, well, why beat around the bush? We're just gonna <laughs> we're just gonna intimidate you with our shortstops. Pitching three innings at a time and uh, not very well. Yeah. It's a little unusual to make your pitching debut and go that many innings, right? Mm -hmm. I would think. And it doesn't look like he even pitched in college based on his baseball cube page. So good job. Great. Massey eating up those innings, I guess. Not as many (laughs) innings as it initially appeared, but uh, still a lot of innings based on your background. Yep. That is a that's Grant Massey. He is yeah he's he's hitting fairly well this season, I guess. But as a part time player, look, it looks like Grant Massey. He uh, he recently turned twenty five years old. He's down on a ball, twenty sixth mm-hmm. round pick. He's probably not going to move very fast. No, probably not. But hey, at least he's getting some some pitching experience. So uh, along the same lines as baseball things that we hadn't heard of, you've got mm-hmm. Grant Massey, a two way player who it turns out really isn't a two way <laughs> player, but. <laughs> There's a team, there is a team that is playing 500 baseball that I don't know if you know that this team is playing 500 baseball. So I'm going to read down a list. I'm going to read down the National League wildcard standings. Arizona Diamondbacks, mm-hmm. they have wildcard position one. Colorado Rockies, they're in wildcard position two. They are three and a half games above the Brewers, who are around. They're five games ahead of the Cardinals, and they're only five and a half games above the Marlins, who have, according to huh. these standings and all the standings I've looked at, the Marlins <laughs> do have 63 wins and 63 losses. The Miami Marlins out. are playing 500 baseball, and it's taken me completely by surprise because I wrote them off three months ago, like everybody else. Yeah. So on on August 10th, something caught my eye. I still follow John Heyman. I'm one of those people on Twitter. And uh, and he tweets out his uh, his inside baseball articles pretty often. And he puts in keywords when he tweets them out because he, he wants people to pay attention to the things that he's writing about, which I totally get. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be something from August 10th. This is an article posted on August 10th by John Heyman. I'm going to scroll down. There's one of his bullet points midway through the article. Bullet point. The most shocking thing of the week was Fangraphs putting the Marlins playoff chances at 2.5%. Normally, their numbers make sense but Miami was 10 games out in the wild card and even more in the National League East. Computer malfunction? And Heyman retweeted this article again the next day saying, what's up with fan graphs? That article went up August 10th. <laughs> and on August 9th, when Heyman probably started drafting this article, the Marlins were 53 and 59. And since then, they've won 10 of 14. And they've pulled themselves all the way up to 63 and 63. Now their playoff odds currently sit at 9.6%. They've gotten hmm. better. They've quadrupled. So... What was up with Fangrass? I don't. Uh, I don't know. I uh, when uh, <laughs> when Heyman tweeted that, I did look at the odds. I thought this looks a little weird, but I think that the Marlins have this little hidden advantage of they have a really soft schedule 
from here on out because they get to play the National League East, which generally is bad. Yeah. And so teams that they're competing against in the wildcard race, I don't think anyone thinks that the Rockies are dominant. And, you know, the playoff odds don't really love the Brewers and the Cardinals are only OK. I don't know if it was some sort of like weird, very small scale computer error a couple of weeks ago with the Marlins. But I guess reality has validated it because mm-hmm. the Marlins, there was some chance that the Marlins would get back in the hunt and the Marlins have kind of gotten back in the hunt. They only have, what, 36 games to play. So they still have a lot of ground to make up, but they've made up a lot of ground already. The Miami Marlins, whose pitching staff includes, I don't know, are in <laughs> the playoff hunt. Can, how? Okay, we're going to play a game. We're going to play a game. <laughs> okay. I want you to name as many Marlins pitchers who have started a game this season. And I'm going to tell you, there have been 11 of them. So I've already told you some of the names. There was a little there was a little hint earlier when I was reading right. off names from Reese Hoskins. So 11 Marlins starting pitchers. Name them as best as you can. <laughs> well, so I know Edinson Volquez threw a no-hitter. Yep, he's so, the table. This is that was the for the Marlins. You mentioned Dan Straley. Yeah, that's true. He's, he's a Marlin. I know that you are a fan or have been a fan of Adam Conley. I that's three. That, he's okay. not very good. Uh, <laughs> it's getting a little harder now. <laughs> oh, uh, Wayne Chen is on that team. Yeah, he started five times, but he's on the disabled list. Okay. Seven Boy, more. Is is Tom Kohler on the Marlins still? <laughs> he's not anymore, but he was. That's, okay. that's five. He okay. was recently traded to the Blue Jays, I believe. All right. You know what? I'm happy with five. I'm going to rest there. Yeah. Okay. I think of those pitchers, only Straley is active. You've got Jose Urania. <laughs> That's sure. uh yeah okay that's that's there's a uh, there's Vance Worley he just pitched yesterday Vance Worley he's crowned and he started 10 times bad team but good team Justin Nicolino the low strikeout huh. wonderkind Jeff Locke wow yeah someone <laughs> named Chris O'Grady has started six times I have never you could probably tell me that's someone who converted from football like a week ago <laughs> yeah and Odrissimer Despagne he's oh. around Address, okay. I, I'm whatever. That's a lot of syllables, but I think I nailed most of them. And that's a, I think that that should be eleven. I don't think that I bypassed anyone. So eleven Marlins starters. Their current rotation, that is their last five starting pitchers. Just to uh, take a glance at how things look, it has been Worley, Nicolino, Urania, Straley, and Conley. This team, <laughs> this team is apparently kicking ass, and I don't know how. <laughs> they began the year with uh, Danny Echeverria. He's gone. They traded yeah. him. D. Gordon was playing some, but he's gone. J.T. Riddle, who's someone I had never heard of, took over at shortstop, but then he got hurt for the season. And so <laughs> Miguel Rojas has taken over. He is their current everyday shortstop. Derek Dietrich is playing third base every day because Martin Prado is done for the year. The first base lately has been handled by catcher J.T. Realmuto because Justin <laughs> Bohr is yeah. on the disabled list. Tomas Talese has also been playing a first base half the time. And the only reason I know Tomas Talese is in the past, he's measured as one of the worst framing catchers mm. on record. So this team, man, this team is not good, but they're on fire and they're in the hunt. And I wow. don't know how, but no, that's I, the Marlins. And uh, <laughs> I kind of I kind of want them to do it now. I want them to make it. Yeah, <laughs> that is, I did not expect that. I'm not used to like NL playoff uncertainty because the NL playoffs have just seemed predetermined now for for months. And yeah, I was I was not aware. And if you had told me who was on the Marlins to the extent that I didn't know that already, I would have been even more surprised to hear this. So yeah, <laughs> I I wonder if this has been run score. 
scoring that they have managed to outdo this lousy sounding rotation or whether they've just been winning a lot of one run games or having a bunch of clutch hitting or or what but it's wow it's john carlos sandin yeah that's that's probably a, a big chunk of it yeah i haven't looked at the numbers but second half john carlos stanton has hit 305 uh, this is Giancarlo Stanton and his, his WRC plus is 203 because yeah. he's hit 21 home runs. He has nearly as many second half home runs as first half home runs. He is doing everything. It is all Giancarlo Stanton. His second half isolated power is 504. <laughs> wow. Unbelievable. Yeah. So the Marlins, of course, they have some good opponents. They have the Nationals six times left over the remainder of the season. And that's going to be tough. But at the same time, the Nationals don't have a whole lot to play for. But they also have a series against the Padres. They have a four-game series against the Phillies and then a three-game series against the Phillies. They have, it looks like, seven or eight more games against the Braves. They get whatever the hell is left of the Mets. And maybe, crucially, there is a, a stretch Toward the end of September, the Marlins have back-to-back series, unfortunately for them, on the road. Three against Arizona, three against Colorado. Could be interesting as the Marlins vie against literally all odds, except for those published in Fangraphs, to make the playoffs. Yeah, Stanton is leading the majors in win probability added in the second half. So there you go. (laughs) <laughs> this is unbelievable. What a bad team that is doing it. Okay, well, I guess we're we're kind of duty-bound to at least address the physical histrionics from yesterday's Tigers-Yankees game. Mm-hmm. I think that there's not, there's not really anything getting past it because ordinarily we'll talk about there being one bench-clearing incident. This game had four yeah. bench clearing incidents yeah and i don't know have you did you look it up at all were you watching did you read anything not about watching it? I've, I've, i'm peripherally aware but i didn't do a, a deep dive on the footage yeah and i didn't either which is going to make this easy because we can just <laughs> not talk about it a whole lot but it kind of started i think this was mostly self-contained to this one day and gary sanchez hit a, a long home run he's been mm-hmm. doing a lot of yeah, that he hit four in that series i think yeah there you go And uh, in his next time up, Michael Fulmer hit him with a pitch, which looks admittedly suspicious. And it's not like the Tigers are not playing for anything, really. So what did Fulmer have to lose? Mm -hmm. So Sanchez was hit in the fifth inning. So that kind of got some people's attention. Sanchez looked out to the mound. Fulmer immediately responded on the mound by like jumping and turning around and then shaking his hand because, oh, by the way, Michael Fulmer has recently felt numbness in his hand. Mm. So that's uh, that's <laughs> it's a, one clue. It's that... a great cover story at the very least, but yeah. <laughs> so it's a case where you can, if you know the history, you know Fulmer has had hand numbness, bad thing to experience as a pitcher, bad thing to experience as any person, to be yeah, honest, but sure. pitcher worse than most. Uh, but also Fulmer's immediate body language of, oh, I wish I didn't do that, because Fulmer probably knew at that instant, this isn't going to play well. This looks suspicious. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so we move on, and things uh, are mostly fine, and the Yankees have the lead when Sanchez is hit, but then the Tigers take the lead, and it's it's 6-3, to three, and then we go to the bottom of the sixth inning, and maybe 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 the Yankees were just biding their time. Maybe they wanted to wait until a certain Miguel Cabrera came up. But actually, no, they weren't doing that because Miguel Cabrera batted in the bottom of the fifth. So never mind. They missed (laughs) that opportunity to throw at or around Miguel Cabrera. But we go to the bottom of the sixth. After Fulmer hit Sanchez, there were no warnings issued. But in the sixth inning, Tommy Canely was pitching. He struck out Mikey Matuk and he struck out Justin Upton. This is every Tommy Canley appearance. Also, incidentally, to close out the bottom of the fifth, he struck out Ian Kinzer. So Canley at this point, three batters, <laughs> yeah. three strikeouts, all swinging. He's great. The at-bat began with Tommy Canley facing Miguel Cabrera. The at-bat officially ended with Araldis Chapman facing Dixon Machado, which is a lot of fun <laughs> yeah. because Canley comes in and with two outs, nobody on. Tigers up by three. His, uh, his first pitch, 
is a fastball that sails behind the upper body of Miguel Cabrera. That looks bad. Canley was tossed, which immediately got Joe Girardi upset and ejected because there were no warnings given, but the umpire was just trying to read the room. So Canley's gone, one pitch in, and Aroldis Chapman comes in, but as Chapman is standing there on the mound, Miguel Cabrera has a disagreement with the Yankees catcher. Which which one is he? He's Austin Romine. Mm-hmm. So Austin Romine is the Yankees catcher. He says something, and Cabrera says something. Who knows who says what first? And then they, they have a little shovey poo and then it turns into something worse. And so Cabrera tries to throw some punches. It looks like he missed. Romine tackled Cabrera. The bench is clear. Chapman's just kind of out there thinking, this one I didn't start. Yeah, Cabrera immediately goes into like full boxer mode. He was yeah. like he, the old timey, like just putting his dukes up. He was he was ready. And uh, he he shoved Romine. So Romine takes off the mask and then Cabrera gives him a shove, which gives Cabrera the advantage. He immediately can, can shove and then get ready to throw a punch because at that point he has taken command of the situation. However, his punches were bad. They missed and Romine actually tackled Cabrera. And then there was something that was kind of hidden in there. Gary Sanchez comes screeching out of the Yankee dugout and he like sucker punches. I, I believe he's in there sucker punching Miguel Cabrera or something. He, he gets one punch. I had to look for a replay this morning. Maybe I got this wrong. But Sanchez kind of threw a punch at a guy who was already on the ground. That's hidden in the melee. Sanchez wasn't ejected or anything, but it's there. Some Tigers saw it. And this led to a disagreement among the Tigers, where Victor Martinez was kind of seen hanging out buddy-buddy with Gary Sanchez, while Justin Verlander and Nicholas Castellanos were like, no, don't be buddy-buddy with him. He punched our MVP in the head, or at least our past MVP. Mm-hmm. So there's disagreements all over the place. So Tommy Canley throws a ball to Miguel Cabrera, but Araldis Chapman ultimately allows a single to Dixon Machado. So good for Machado. Machado steals second base because whatever. Why not? Everyone can steal against Araldis Chapman, I guess. So maybe that's going to be it, right? No, that's not going to be it. <laughs> we left out David Robertson sprinting in from the ah, bullpen. That's right. The most I forgot which moment it... of this entire. That was the that initial, that was the Romine Cabrera boxing match that led to Robertson sprinting in, which I like to see because often when you get these brawls, they're they're less like real brawls than this one was, and guys are just milling around, and the bullpens just trot in dutifully, but there is no haste at all to their arrival, and they're just <laughs> kind of jogging in, like almost you know meeting in the middle of the two bullpens, and there's no urgency to it. There's It's just purely eyewash. It's just for show. And in this case, Robertson was like, hey, they might need me. I, I need to be there. <laughs> <laughs> they need me. I'm going to get there as fast as I possibly can. So good for David Robertson to break the bullpen brawler stereotype. Yeah, I had forgotten which incident it was that Robertson came sprinting out. I had a mental note to to mention it, and I just missed it completely. I mean, you've got, what, three or four Yankees bullpen people Mm -hmm. who are like 50 yards behind them. There's probably even more off screen, and Robertson is just dead against some (laughs) random Braves fan. He's just like totally lapping them all. Maybe it was just the camera angle, but it looked like his upper body was like angled back, like his legs were just kind of out of control, just sprinting him forward. And his brain's like, I don't know, but I guess we're doing this. <laughs> so Robertson goes in. Anyway, things, I don't know, kind of settle down, I guess. We go to the top of the seventh and the Yankees tie the game and then we move on down to the bottom of the seventh. And this is when things light up again, because Dylan Batances, who has walked 13 batters per nine innings, probably this season. Don't look it up. I'm close to true. <laughs> he comes in and leading off the bottom of the seventh, Batances gets a first pitch strike in against James McCann. And then he throws a second pitch strike to his head and McCann goes down. Batances is tossed because you can't throw a fastball at somebody's head. Batances 
probably. In fact, I'll say he almost certainly did not intend to hit McCann. His first pitch was nowhere close. His first pitch was a strike, and it takes a real kind of villain to set someone up with a strike before you try to hit him in the head. Mm-hmm. That's distasteful. Batances doesn't have that kind of background. I know Jeff Passon wrote an article where he talked about the improbability of this happening, but you know, Batances is not throwing a lot of strikes. He's been one of the worst strike throwers in baseball. Mm-hmm. He was trying to throw an inside fastball to James McCann, rode up, got him in the head. I'm not going to say that. Maybe there was a part of Bedantis that was interested in the idea of hitting McCann somewhere, but that wasn't that wasn't supposed to happen. Yeah. Thankfully, McCann seems to be okay. Being Bedantis uh, but- is right up there with hand numbness as like a good <laughs> excuse for hitting someone by accident. Yeah, strong agree. Where I know that Batances doesn't have a history of a whole lot of uh, hit by pitches, but oh, by this year he does have seven, mm-hmm. which is a career high. Seven and forty-seven. He's hitting a lot of dudes, Dylan mm-hmm. Batances, and and McCann was unfortunately one of them. So that happens. The next batter, David Robertson, hits John Hicks in an zero and two count. Robertson not ejected because you know zero and two count, and at some point also you're just going to run out of Yankees players. But it's interesting. So at this point you have the umpire making judgment calls, trying to read and which of course they always do but you've got Dylan Batances lighting up James McCann's brain stem and then he's out but then David Robinson immediately hits John Hicks and he's fine I think that that was just kind of like one of those eye roll moments but the Tigers take the lead in the inning they go up nine to six and then we go to the top of the eighth and the game I guess the game doesn't end but the uh, the the brawls end with one out I guess Alex Wilson didn't much feel like hitting Chase Headley was going to be very significant so he decided to let Chase Headley making out and then he drilled Todd Frazier who I don't know maybe he just hates Todd Frazier from his days with the White Sox or something but Alex Wilson hit Todd Frazier benches clear one more time I don't remember where it was that Brett Gardner was kind of doing the hold me back thing and then CeCe Zabathia was laughing about it mm. he was a great terrible day for baseball but the the one refreshing thing about Alex Wilson is he's like yeah I meant to hit him <laughs> yeah there's not enough of that so that's how it ended Gary Sanchez I think some people think that Sanchez was the biggest villain in all of this because he threw a couple punches while he was not really the center of attention mm-hmm. threw a punch at Miguel Cabrera and then uh, 15 seconds later he tried to throw a punch at somebody else I don't know who it was you can look at this and think okay what happened Fulmer you can excuse probably didn't mean to hit the guy Tommy Canley probably did mean to throw behind Miguel Cabrera but then Cabrera kind of had a delayed reaction where he decided to go after Austin Romine. And for anyone who hasn't already heard about this, Austin Romine, Yankees catcher on the Tigers roster, Andrew Romine, his brother, also involved right. in the brawl. Hilarious. I don't know what the loyalties are in that situation where you have brothers on opposite sides, then you have the Tigers fighting amongst themselves because one of their players didn't see the player he was friends with punching the other players on his own team. It's just, it's a big, ugly, complicated mess. I don't know who's going to get the biggest suspension. People have said that it should be Sanchez for throwing his punches. Probably won't be Batances. You wonder if Alex Wilson is going to get the longest possible suspension out of everyone just because he admitted that he was trying to hit a guy, Mm -hmm. even though you want that honesty in a case like this, because it's so obvious. And maybe the weirdest thing about the game is that Jose Iglesias went three for three with two after bases. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'm always conflicted about these things because on the one hand, fighting is stupid and there probably shouldn't be fighting in baseball. But if you are going to fight, at least like put some effort into it, I guess. Maybe those are (laughs) conflicting opinions. I'm not sure. But it's just it's tiresome when 
they're wasting our time and they're not actually angry at each other. At least in this case, there was genuine emotion and uh, it wasn't just one of those things where they're all standing around posturing and, and being macho. And uh, this was this was genuine aggression here, which should be discouraged. But I mean, people still watch UFC and boxing and stuff. So there is some primal instinct inside us that this appeals to as uh, an entertainment and so this was uh, I guess the the biggest brawl of the year or at least uh, unless you count like the Manny Machado craziness earlier this year that was more of a an isolated thing with a single player versus one team this was a whole team versus a team <laughs> including David Robertson yeah satisfying brawl Yankees still in a pretty good position they're three and a half well I guess they're four games clear of the nearest non-wild card team so they can they can afford a a few suspensions and and they'll be okay. Incidentally, in case you haven't paid attention, here's the race for the second wild card: Twins, Royals. Uh, Twins have it. Royals, Angels, Mariners, a half game back. All of them. Rangers, one game back. Rays and Orioles, three games back. And the Blue Jays are lingering at five. So the five-way tie situation is still a possibility. But in any case, Yankees will face suspensions for them. It will matter. Tigers will face suspensions for them. It will not matter. But good brawl. Good series of brawls. Stupid, but. Whatever. Most of the things that happen on a baseball field are stupid. The very act of watching baseball and caring about it so deeply is stupid. Mm -hmm. So whatever. (laughs) Lean into the stupid. It's all stupid and everyone's okay. Stupid plus time equals cherished, as you said last week. Yeah, this this actually this gave me the occasion to go look at Miguel Cabrera's stats, which I hadn't done recently. And boy, (laughs) they do not look like Miguel Cabrera's stats. This is disconcerting to see Miguel Cabrera with a below average slash line. I think, and I'm not entirely sure, but I think the last time I checked on Baseball Savant, they have the that expected Woba statistic mm-hmm. based on the Statcast inputs, and I think Cabrera, by that measure, still rates as a yeah uh, as a pretty good, pretty dangerous hitter. But you know, his body's going to start to fail him, and just like with Albert Pujols, when all you know is what pitches to swing at and how to swing, but your body doesn't really let you do things like it used to, then that's that's kind of what declining is, right? Yeah, well, maybe you can be a boxer. <laughs> so one of the things that's come out of the Tigers-Yankees game is that maybe the biggest problem was the umpires because the umpires didn't issue any warning after Fulmer hit Sanchez. And then things kind of got out of control from there. Canley was ejected. There was a warning that made Joe Girardi upset and everything kind of spiraled out of control. So this is a game. Another game where there is a lot of blame that is being handed out to the guys in blue, who are actually, I believe, the guys in black. So <laughs> that one, that's a that's an expression that should probably change. But it's been it's been umpire week, I guess you could say. There was a the umpire protest earlier this week where Joe West and Angel Hernandez, I think a, a handful of umpires mm-hmm. went out wearing white wristbands yes. as a silent protest. Well, at least what they referred to as a silent protest <laughs> while speaking about it. Yes, while speaking about it, a silent protest against the what they uh, say to be increasing verbal attacks from players. And so maybe this is going to be contrarian, but I would like to propose to you an idea and I, I would like to gauge whether or not you agree with it that I think that umpires might be, I don't know if tragic is the right word, but they might be baseball's hidden sympathetic characters, just kind of in general. There were articles, and I was reading Jeff Pat, I was reading a number of articles that were kind of making fun of the umpires for their protests, and it, I, I get it. It's it's silly. It's silly to see the umpires wearing white wristbands, never mind the, the symbolism of wearing the white wristband, but also at like a time like this when there right. are so many greater protests in America. Like the timing, it's not great. I get that. Mm-hmm. However, I, I can understand that the umpires feel like 
perhaps they are increasingly aggrieved. And I know that people have very strong opinions about Joe West. I know that people have very strong opinions about C.B. Buckner and Angel Hernandez and the Angel Hernandez lawsuit and everything. And, and everyone has their least favorite umpires. And nobody, nobody, not nobody that you talk to has a favorite umpire. It doesn't exist. But do umpires ever get their stories told? I feel like they are always the opposition in any sort of commentary because you've got, from the fan perspective, you care about your team mm -hmm. and your players. From the writer perspective, you're writing about teams and players. You're mostly talking to players. You're very seldom talking to umpires. Writers aren't really connected to the umpire world. And, and the umpires are just kind of always there presented as the villains. But if you think about the pressure that they face all the time, they don't get to speak their side of the story story almost ever when they do there's a natural inclination to take the side of the players because we we just always side with the players in these things because we like the players we watch baseball for the players mm -hmm. so umpires are kind of treated unfairly on that basis they only ever get attention when they get things wrong on the field and they have to worry about their very jobs because you've got instant replay which has taken over so much of the game and it's uh, all their calls are getting reviewed now on the field and now you have all this chatter about the automated strikes Zone, umpires have to be filling it from all sides and they don't get any sympathy for mm -hmm. it and so i like it, it makes sense that they can sort of be on edge they act like they're on tilt and they're just throwing players out of games and and they're expressing their frustration and they're trying to band together in protest because i know that they they get paid well and they're unionized they get their some of them get hundreds of thousands of dollars a year as their salary and they only work what seven months maybe eight if mm -hmm. you work the playoffs and spring training but it's got to be terrible it's got to be terrible to be a major league umpire and nobody cares nobody wants to hear the umpires out mm -hmm. and give them any sort of the benefit of the doubt for how difficult it must be to go out there every day and feel like everybody hates you. It's like being a dentist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's always been terrible, I guess. And if anything, it would be less terrible now. I don't know whether the fact that we have replay and that these umpires calls are subject to review, on the one hand, it kind of is embarrassing, right? It exposes their mistakes. Now, many of those mistakes are understandable and anyone else in the world would make the same mistakes. But still, most people don't have a job where when you make a decision or you you do something immediately everything you did is questioned by everyone watching at home and everyone in your office and then you know they pull up a replay of you making that dumb decision and then you have to be the one to hear nope that was wrong and then you have to admit you were wrong i mean it's you know that's that's not a fun occupation and it never has been i don't know whether it's easier now because of that like you you don't get as many arguments anymore with with managers i guess because there are things that you can't argue because you just challenge and there's no point in arguing so on the one hand, maybe there's less outright aggression. On the other hand, there's just more being embarrassed. And, and I mean, maybe you don't look at it as being embarrassed, but it is kind of an embarrassing situation. And in the past, of course, there was no objective record before replay. Fans were certainly convinced that they were right and you were wrong and you were trying to screw them over, but no one could point to the video and say, yep, here's you being wrong. And so maybe that made things a little easier. On the other hand, I think the conditions have improved. I think, you know, umpires like lives were at risk in, in the early days <laughs> of baseball. So that's not the case anymore. You know, they're, I think, more protected from angry rooters and there's safety on the field and off the field. And 
So I think if anything, probably an earlier generation of umpires would say, you guys have it easy. Why are you doing a protest? We went through harder things than you have to go through, but it's still a pretty thankless job and has a lot of elements that almost every other job does not have. So I can totally understand why they would be on edge when everyone is always on edge with them. There's just no getting around that other than robots, perhaps, who will not get mad at anyone, and it's hard to get mad at a robot, so maybe that will happen at some point. But as long as you have human umpires, you're going to have other humans who are mad at those umpires and those human umpires are going to be mad at other people. Yeah, it's not unique to baseball. People hate umpires or referees Mm -hmm. and and every sport. We're just kind of raised that way, really. But if you look at it just in the baseball context, because it's the only thing that I really know, you've got players are making more money than ever. Whether they are benefiting enough from the increase in baseball revenues, I don't know. That's for somebody else to analyze. But the average salary has skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. The average salary now is what? It's over $3 million, I think. So it's, it's something silly. So... There is more money in baseball than ever before. There is therefore more at stake for baseball players than ever before. There's just more for them to gain or for them to lose. I don't have any historical tracking of umpire salaries, but I cannot imagine that umpires are really benefiting to the same degree from the increase in revenues because why would they? Nobody is paying attention to baseball because of the umpires. I get that, but you've got umpires who are dealing with players who have more at stake, and the umpires just every year, they are having their authority further eroded. Mm -hmm. So whether it's a matter of being embarrassed or maybe some umpires like having instant replay at the end of the day, it just means that their responsibilities are reduced. Uh, Their role is reduced, and that's not going to make anybody feel good. And of course, what feels most central to umpires is that they're in charge of the the ball strike zone. Mm -hmm. And that could go away at any moment. Well, I guess not at, not at any moment, but it's there. It's looming and it feels inevitable. I would imagine it's kind of like working at a machine shop 50 or 60 years ago. And you think, well, I don't know. I've heard about these computers. We're probably going to be fine, <laughs> but just going to keep coming to work at 730 and hoping, hoping that the job doesn't yeah. go away. But, you know, at some point you feel like the job could go away. And I imagine that you don't get a whole lot of good sleep as an umpire. And so while while I don't I don't like Angel Hernandez, I have issues with umpires myself, and I, I think that there are certainly some somewhat ugly personalities among the crew. It feels like it's almost it it feels too easy and it feels like there's not enough there's not enough of people trying to understand the position that umpires have been put on because it just ends up as Angel Hernandez jokes, CB Buckner jokes, and hashtag ump show. And these people are facing a whole lot of stress and their job is impossible to do right all the time. It's almost impossible to do right most of the time, which they accomplish. I think these conversations often end up with with people acknowledging that, yeah, uh, the umpires in the major leagues are great. And that's something that is important to understand. The umpires in the major leagues are great. And as the best example of how that's true, look at the AAA umpires who come up and try to call the strike zone. They're terrible. It doesn't work. It's bad. This is one of the reasons why there's so little shuffling among the major league umpire population. It's because they are the best for the most part. There are some bad ones, of course, but I don't know. I, uh, I guess I just want the idea out there that the umpires might be the the biggest cast of sympathetic characters in Major League Baseball today, and nobody cares about it. <laughs> wow. That is, uh, that's a position that not many people share. <laughs> I think that, that the umpires are the most sympathetic. Yeah, because it's just the nature of their... Well, who else is? Yeah, I mean, it's the nature of their job that just uh, no one is going to like them because everyone has felt that their team and thus by extension them because people identify very closely with the team that they root for has been screwed 
by umpires in general or umpires in specific at some point in the past and so you you stew over those mistakes and maybe they're not as common now because those mistakes get overturned but you still have ball strike calls and there are of course incorrect ball strike calls and everyone remembers when those calls go against them and I don't know if people remember when those calls are in their favor but even when they remember calls in their favor, it's still an example of the umpire not doing his job perfectly. So that doesn't reflect well on him either. And of course, you don't remember the routine calls, which are right almost all of the time. But, you know, it's the presumption is, well, of course, the call should be right. That's what the umpire is there for. So no one awards any points to the umpire for getting a call right even though it is a, a very difficult job and it's not something that most people could do or any people could do any better than they are doing it. And, you know, at the same time, you have people criticizing the way the umpires are doing their jobs and also suggesting that the umpire should not be doing the job, that we could, you know, replace <laughs> them with machines with no one wants to hear about their their job. So, uh, yeah, I totally understand. And a lot of them still respond inappropriately and should perhaps be censured for that more than they are. But, you know, the vast majority of them are good at their jobs and it's just a really difficult job. Let's let's just say there's a lot of people right now who should be censured for a lot of things <laughs> and they don't really seem to happen. I, I get like there was there was the what weeks ago, Jerry Davis throwing out Adrian Beltre mm -hmm. for his like, uh, yeah, that's that's come on, like lighten yeah. up and. <laughs> On the other hand, like, what are you supposed to? You can't move the on deck circle, and and as we discussed, like, you need the yeah. umpire to to eject him for that to really rise to the moment. So anyway, <laughs> I guess at the major league level, I don't see another cast of sympathetic characters. Now, if you wanna if you wanna get into the minor leagues and talk about people who are down there who are just riding buses all the time or they don't get paid very much money, I I'll, I'm open to the conversation. But at least at the major league level, there's no there are no sympathetic characters. Otherwise, you've got players who make millions of dollars. They're all great. They get treated very well all the time. Everyone is living a great life except for the umpires. That's my conclusion. Everybody in baseball has a great life except for the yeah, umpires. Except for the Mets and Michael Conforto, which is one last thing I wanted uh. to mention. This was like just the, the most fitting capper to the Mets season, which is, is probably not an original thing to say, but... Conforto has been one of the bright spots on this team. He's hit very well, 283, 86, 558 with 27 homers. He's a, a great hitter, and you know there was a lot of controversy about, well, he's not playing enough, and the Mets are burying him, and so, so on and so forth. And, and he has gotten that playing time, and he's done really well with it. And as pitcher after pitcher after pitcher has gotten hurt, and most recently, it was Wheeler done for the year, and Stephen Metz is having surgery now. It's just a litany of terrible news. And then Michael Conforto just swings. That's all he did was swing. He swung and missed, and that is just the most Mets type of injury. I always think it's just like the most depressing kind of baseball injury is just when the player just does something totally routine. Like, it's not some freakish collision. It's not even just like tearing a muscle or something. It's just like throwing a pitch and you break your elbow or something like that's just the most off-putting, just disconcerting injury and just swinging a bat. Something Michael Conforto has done thousands and thousands of times this time, for whatever reason, 
He has a torn posterior capsule in his left shoulder, might need surgery, and yet another Met goes down. So this is, I don't know, I think I've talked about this, I guess, on my other podcast that I always feel like Mets fans are overly fatalistic and that, you know, if you compare the Mets franchises suffering to other franchises, maybe the Mets moan about how much that they have suffered or Mets fans moan about how much they've suffered relative to those other teams. But man, this has been a very depressing season for the Mets. It feels appropriate. I know the season isn't over, but I guess we're to the point where as a Mets fan, you could have said, well, I guess you could say we shouldn't have been building around all of these pitches because pitchers get hurt and they get hurt all the time and there's nothing you can do. And that's just one of the downsides. Should have rebuilt like the Cubs instead of rebuilding around pitching. But how appropriate in a way, just in that darkly Mets way. And I don't want to act like the Mets are all particular and whatnot. Every team gets hurt. But the the, the Mets have earned the reputation. And their <laughs> mm-hmm. season is going to end with their best, most electrifying young player. God, something might happen to Ahmed Rosario. I have no idea. There's still five more weeks in the season. But <laughs> their best breakout young player. He's a position player. Should be safe. He's just out there. He just does the usual thing. He just takes <laughs> a swing. And yeah. now not only is he done for the year, but he has a torn something in his shoulder and it's just going to be in the back of everyone's mind. What is this going to do to his future? Is his Mm -hmm. swing going to be ruined forever? And nobody knows. So (laughs) don't build around pitching slash don't build around people who swing slash don't be the Mets. (laughs) Just sounds horrible. I am. Yeah, it's uh, I'm sorry. Mets fans, you do deserve. Maybe you are the cast of the second most sympathetic characters. (laughs) Yes. Feel free to wallow. So we will end there. You've got a chat to get to. We will talk again next week. Before we finish, a few developments from between the time Jeff and I talked and the time I'm posting this podcast. A, Reese Hoskins homered again. That's number nine. B, MLB released the suspensions from the Tigers-Yankees brawl. Seven games to Miguel Cabrera. That's the biggest suspension, evidently because he started it. Only four games for Gary Sanchez, despite the sucker punching. Four games also for Alex Wilson for intentionally throwing at Todd Frazier and admitting it and also, I guess, reigniting the hostilities after things had settled down. Two games for Austin Romine, one game for Brad Osmus, seemingly because of what Alex Wilson did. A bunch of people were fined, but no suspensions for Fulmer or Batances. So evidently, MLB bought their claims of innocence, as I think did we. And C, John Carl Stanton homered twice in the first three innings of the Marlins-Padres game. As I record this, he has driven in all three of the Marlins' runs, and they have a slim lead, again, entirely because of Stanton. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support include A.J. Schreier, Ryan Johnson, Dominey Banfield, Alex Kapachinskas, and Aiden Jackson-Evans. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. You can contact me and Jeff via email at podcast.fangrass.com or by messaging us through Patreon. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we'll be back soon. Here comes-